0: Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. In this episode, we had an amazing conversation with Dr. Mark Schultz, Associate Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. The Harvard Study of Adult Development is the longest scientific study of happiness ever conducted. Yes, there is a study being conducted on happiness. Radical for its time in 1938, The first-of-its-kind study is now in its 84th year, going strong with an 84% retention rate. In his new book, The Good Life, co-authored by Dr. Robert Waldinger, Dr. Schultz explores the findings of the study so far and shares how we can proactively create happiness by focusing on what keeps us healthy rather than what makes us sick. By coupling Harvard case studies with the latest psychological research, Dr. Schultz illuminates the most common misconceptions about happiness, what social fitness is and how to exercise it, how to understand the influence of our childhood on our adult relationships, what we're likely getting wrong about achievement, and steps we can take if we want to live a good life. The Good Life will be out on January 10th, 2023 in bookstores around the nation. We hope you enjoy this warm and wisdom-packed conversation as much as we did. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Schultz, it's so wonderful to meet you and to have you on our podcast. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
2: So um, uh, the topic uh, that uh, uh, that we're talking about is uh, something that should be of interest to everyone, and uh, you've been working in this field, um, and I think it's it's a, the most complicated of all human endeavors, uh, the the pursuit of happiness, um, and and it's one that I personally had a very unusual experience of it in uh, and and uh, in 2002 I was at NIH at, uh, doing research on um, neurodegenerative diseases, lived in Bethesda, beautiful place, and then. Um, Then uh, right afterwards, I was asked to go to Afghanistan um, by World Bank to do some assessment. I have some public health uh, background. And it was so amazing to me that in this most educated of cities in the world, one of the most affluent cities, there was more depression than in the rural Afghanistan, where people were uh, in in pretty bad shape in 2002. Definitely. And that gives you a, a perspective of... Of where happiness might be coming from, but I don't want to give it, you know, expand beyond that. Before we go on, I want to kind of bring your background uh, and the research you're doing and this population that you're working on. I wanna, I want, I wanna let you kind of expand on that a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing.
1: Sure. So I'm the associate director of a study that's called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And it's really a remarkable study that started in the 1930s, and it started by following 724 adolescents. And these are adolescents from two very different walks of life. So almost two-thirds of the original participants were boys that were uh, living in the poorest areas of Boston. They tended to live in tenement buildings without running water or toilets. And just down the block from those Boys were another group that we're studying at Harvard University. So these were Harvard students. It was about a third of the sample. Uh, so a much more privileged and sort of optimistic outlook on life at that point. And the study has followed those two groups, 724 individuals altogether, through their entire life and followed them really closely. So we've interviewed them, we visited them in their homes when they were young, met their parents. Um, we ask, of course, closed-ended traditional questions like all social scientists, but we also ask a lot of open-ended questions. And as I've said, we've interviewed them over the years as well. More recently, we've gone to visit their homes, uh, observed them when they're talking to their loved ones, um, asked them about the relationships with their children who we're now studying. So we're studying the 1,300 daughters and sons of the original participants. So it's a remarkable study for how long it's lasted. The original diversity of the uh, participants, um, and also the closeness with which we've followed them over the years. Yeah,
2: amazing. Um, the the questionnaires that you use. Um, um, what are the questionnaires, and how often do you implement that? And all uh, that would be of of uh, of uh,
1: and it would give us some insight. Sure. So over the course of the eight decades that we've followed these folks. On average, we've interviewed them every five to 10 years. Um, We've uh, sent them questionnaires to respond every two years or so. And the questionnaires, you know—the the the times have changed and the science has changed over the years as well. So the questionnaires were the standard sort of psychological questions that um, were asked at the time, but they've evolved. So we asked about the quality of their relationships with others. We asked about how they coped with challenges in their lives. We asked about the source of those challenges in their lives. And we asked especially, we were interested in what the lived experience was. So we tried to sort of get inside their head, if you will, and and understand what it was like to live for them and what the challenges and opportunities were like. Um, The questions have certainly changed over the years. So in the 1930s, they thought it might be worthwhile to measure the kind of physiognomy, the way the head was shaped, um, and that might predict certain things. And now we know that that's unlikely. Um, And more recently, we've introduced sort of modern scientific methods like brain scanning and um, assays of blood to determine things like epigenetic expression of genes and things like that. So the questions have changed over the years, but one of the other unique things and important things about the study is from its very beginning, it was a study about thriving. It wasn't a traditional medical study about pathology or disorder. It was really about trying to understand the ingredients uh, that helped humans thrive. And there were two very d- different groups of people, as I said, uh, but they're both thriving in certain ways. So the poor boys growing up in these neighborhoods in Boston had thrived in the sense that they had stayed out of trouble, unlike a lot of their peers that were growing up in these tough neighborhoods. So at the beginning of adolescence, they were doing okay. And the kids that had gone to Harvard obviously were thriving in a different way. But the study really focused on the factors that led to, again, human thriving and happiness, what we call a good life. We have a new book coming out called The Good Life. That's right. No, no,
2: we we, we want to highlight the book. <clears throat> uh, I think it's, it's a, a critical topic to at least get insights on. Um, uh, my question also is, did you collect any uh, uh, audio uh, recordings? Did you collect any? Because to me, um, um, given our tools that are, that we will have uh, or have already but but we'll, especially in the near future mm-hmm. ability to analyze the audio and video um, is is more than just what they say it's the the intonations the the vacillations. you could even detect certain emotional qualities within the voice which we we we're very close to having that and that's going to actually increase the quality and the interrater all those variables that makes a yep a database more value, valuable over time. So yeah, yeah. I would love, love if that's been done.
1: So again, 80-year study. So in the beginning, of course, that wasn't done, but the study did an interesting thing. It it was driven by folks who were clinicians and learned to work with people clinically, and they were really interested in what people had to say. So the notes from interviews are quite extensive, mm. often including uh, verbatim quotes from participants. So when I go back into the study records, I can get a real feel for what this person may have been like as an adolescent from the interview. The notes are often, you know, 10 to 15 pages long from a 45-page, from about 45-minute interview. Um, more recently, of course, we've started to record the interviews, both uh, originally just doing audio or digital recordings. And we've also done video recordings of interactions as well. So and we've used some of the methods that you're suggesting, trying to look at not just the content of what people are saying, but also the way in which they say things and the voice tone and frequency of certain aspects of speech are all things that that we have been interested in and continue to look at.
2: Absolutely. It's it's a, a interesting time with the data and uh, the 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 science of large data that's uh, that's about to hit us and it's going to give us so much more information mm-hmm. on from my own um, uh, interest because we're I'm a, a behavioral neurologist and uh, and interested in cognition I a uh, stroke neurologist and and behavior as well um, any uh, cognitive testing the, the, yeah. the being done okay
1: yeah so of course as our participants aged as they got into their seventies and eighties and even nineties as we followed them through the end of life. One of the things that we were interested in was their cognitive functioning and trying to look for signs of cognitive decline. So we used some standard neuropsychological batteries testing their memory and some of their executive functioning. Um, And one of the things that got us exciting, because we're a study that's become known for seeing the importance of relationships in Uh, in well-being, but also in in physical well-being as well, in our health. Uh, So we found a pattern, for example, that participants in their 80s who were strongly connected to their partners, this is their intimate partners, showed less of a decline over a a three-and-a-half-year period in their memory functioning. Um, So we're beginning to try and unpack some of the connections to um, cognitive functioning and cognitive decline as people age as well.
2: Yeah, that that's that's remarkable. Also, some of the other confounds that we usually look at when we're looking at happiness, although it, it it manifests so differently, is education level, socioeconomic status, nowadays zip codes and things of that nature that can that can become a big factor. And, and you kind of alluded to that. Um, so let's get into the content of what you found. Sorry, you wanted to
1: say something. Well, I wanted to say one thing about education, which is quite fascinating. So we had almost two thirds of our sample were poor boys growing up in Boston and these, you know, sort of challenging neighborhoods. Most of them didn't go on to college, uh, whereas the Harvard sample, the the boys that were in college at that point, um, obviously were in university. And many of them went on and and got additional uh, educational training. Um, but one of the notable findings early on from the study is that there was a gap of about ten years in terms of how long the two cohorts lived. So the boys that grew up in these inner city neighborhoods, on average, died ten years younger than the group that went to Harvard University. So the marker there is education. But we know, of course, in this study and many yep. others, education is much bigger than just going to school and paying yep. attention to your classes. It's a marker for socioeconomic status and certain opportunities like better access to health and things like that. But that's a, a quite a dramatic difference. And one of the things we tried to do more recently where this is ongoing work that we're doing is to go into the actual neighborhoods that the boys grew up in and try and see what kinds of influences those neighborhoods may have had. So they grew up mm-hmm. in the 20s and 30s. Uh, This was a time when uh, public water wasn't accessible at this point, or if it was accessible, it was at a location where you had to go to. It wasn't coming into your, your house. So we're trying to trace some of the potential health exposures that they had early on by the neighborhoods that they grew up in. Some of them also lived downwind of you know manufacturing places that might have been spewing lead out into their neighborhoods so we're trying to make that yes. connection that you're suggesting between neighborhoods or zip codes and their health outcomes as they live their entire lives
2: it's yeah. it's so interesting that you bring i mean the the complexity of the variables that go into creating an outcome any outcome uh, not even one as complex as happiness or quality is is so varied and as uh, uh, that um, up to now, we've been missing a lot of the confounds, a lot of the variables that could indirectly have a significant effect. Um, and uh, so we'll get into that when it comes to a complex concept like this. So you named the book uh, about a good life, right? Uh, ju- even that name, that concept, how, uh, it intrigues me. How did you come to that? I mean, I, for myself, I would think what would be the most over... It, well, how I would determine the naming paradigm is Is it the most over, is it the most encompassing title? Is it the most encompassing variable that would take everything else underneath it? But how would you decide what is the umbrella and what goes under it? (laughs) Both of those factors are uh, almost like uh, um, a tautology kind of a thing. So how did you determine that title?
1: So... I, I think the best way to to talk about this is that the the question of how to live a good life and what the good life is is a topic that I've been focused on since I was an adolescent. I spent a good amount of my time in college, both in classes and with friends, trying to think about it and figure it out. And of course, I tried it in my life itself, trying to figure out the the ways to pursue what I thought would would lead to happiness and a good life. So mm-hmm. we thought the good life encompassed this idea about. Um, that, that we all struggle with, sort of how to live a life that's fulfilling and meaningful. Um, and we decided to name it The Good Life. The study's also been known as the longest study of happiness. And it's true that we've been interested in happiness and thriving. Uh, but one of the take-homes that I want to um, include early in our discussion is The Good Life is filled with good things and also sad things and challenges. So The mm-hmm. Good Life was a term that allowed us to incorporate the idea that it's hard to live a good life filled with happiness and meaning without also experiencing struggles and loss. And if you think about relationships, which we think is the key to a good life, um, relationships are the places where we often experience our greatest joys, Uh, but it's hard to be in relationships without also experiencing tensions and disappointments and certainly loss as well when we're close to people. So the good life is is a life that's well-lived because you engage in life, you engage in the good parts but you also experience some of the challenges that life brings us.
0: Amazing. Uh, was there an accepted definition? I'm, I'm just wondering, how do you apply that definition to a population when you're yeah. working with questionnaires? Like, how, 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 what are the variables that go in it?
1: So, it's really interesting how the science has turned out around this. Um, because in social science, when people talk about happiness, they usually talk about two dimensions. So, they talk about a kind of more long standing, dimension, which might be, uh, in general, how satisfied you are in your life or the meaning you experience in your life. And that's a relatively stable aspect of your own identity. In general, do you find your life to be a meaningful or satisfying one? And then the other dimension is really the kind of momentary joy and happiness. So it's those positive emotions that we link with, with happiness and with uh, the experience of a good life. Um and those are momentary. They happen in the moment they we can measure them you know hourly or uh, depending with new technology, we can measure them more frequently than that. Um but the combination of experiencing joy and happiness and pleasure, along with a sense of meaning and purpose, I think, are the the two dimensions. And those are the dimensions that philosophers have talked about for you know millennia. This was something in Greek philosophy that that folks talked about. so the modern definition of what we mean by happiness um, is not that different than what folks have been talking about two, three thousand years ago.
2: Uh, I'm going to kind of take a risk here. I hope as a good scientist, we're always very careful. And and, um, uh, the true nature of humility is in science, which is, uh, even though this is my field, behavior, you know, uh, neuroscience, but I'm, I'm always very questioning my own questioning. So I'll come at it very uh, carefully. Um, <clears throat> so from my perspective, um, that, that feeling of, uh, of a good life is uh, abatement or diminution of an underlying angst state, which is this uh, sympathetic drive being replaced by, um, and and even those concepts have been so overused in social media that it kind of makes me nauseated thinking about it. Sympathetic, parasympathetic, dopamine, serotonin, it's just uh, uh, bewilderingly overused, but lowering the sympathetic drive and, uh, the, and the added state and create a moment of comfort. And at the same time, bringing the signal of awareness to the moment, uh, a little bit of a physiological definition that I've come up with, um uh, and I'm very humbly uh, i'm I'm positing and testing and <laughs> thinking about it. Um, and not even I'm not even talking about the blissful moments that uh, you know Joseph Campbell had, like riding, I always tell my wife, I'm riding the bicycle on this beach. I think the only three major blissful moments was on on the bike path, but those are exceptions, right? Those are out of the ex- uh, ordinary. So, in a physiological way, is that kind of come close to what you're describing? I, or am I so I, I think, off that I shouldn't? Okay. No, yeah. no, no,
1: no. I, I think it's a really thoughtful perspective. And, and you know, we, we all have an idea because that's part of our kind of popular culture now about the importance of living in the moment. And the idea of living in the moment is that we're not aspiring for something different than the moment we're in. That's the important idea. We're not trying to compare this moment to something that may happen in the future. When I succeed, I'll earn this much money or something that happened in the past. You know, I'm not feeling the same as I did when I was younger Uh, That takes us out of the moment. So I think this idea about conquering some of the angst or stress or anxiety that we all feel, being able to manage that at a level that we can appreciate what's happening to us in the moment, and those periods in which we feel that bliss or that joy, um, I think they're probably less rare than than you're suggesting. I would argue that they're less rare than you're suggesting. Mm -hmm. We can experience them. When we're with people that we are fond of, that we care about, that we're connected with, if we pay attention to that connection, we're likely to experience more of those moments. But I like the idea of having to, to manage some of the challenge emotions and some of the challenge stress that we experience in order to leave us open, to open us to the experience of sort of joy and pleasure. The other thing I like about that definition is, so I suggested it's maybe more common than you were suggesting. But I don't think we at all want to um, uh, indicate that this is something that we experience all the time, that um, life is full of, um, again, of challenges and joys. Uh, there's a balance of that. Um, pursuing bliss in and of itself um, is not likely, we think, to lead to a good life. There are other ways to to pursue this and to lead a good life.
2: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, now I have to think about why I'm experiencing bliss so so infrequently but but i'm feeling a world. lot of joy
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. being judgmental I, I'm, now. <laughs> I'm
1: feeling guilty right now no no well, i have right. a high standard that that may be yeah, part no, of it right but, yeah
2: yes 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 what i meant yeah. by bliss was this moment I, I don't mean any out of body experience kind of a thing yeah. but really a, 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 an exalted a higher level of experience but yeah. But experiencing high-level joy is definitely something. Now I'm being defensive, <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Schultz. I am happy. I promise you. No, no, but 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 that's beautiful. So, uh, having said that, uh, I don't without putting out the final product. What did you find in general? And 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 I would love to kind of. This uh, disentangle this amazing 80 year, year
1: story. I'm
0: curious
2: to know
1: yeah. that too. Right, right, right. So, when you do right. a study for 80 years, there are hundreds and hundreds of findings. But when yeah. we zoom out a little bit and we kind of look at the signal here, uh, mm-hmm. that's the most common predictor. What we found is it's relationships that shape your health and your psychological well being. It's the best predictor in our study. And in fact, in many studies. So uh, one of the things that's really important when you do science, and both of you do such a good job of this in your work, is to look beyond one study. So our study is interesting. interesting. It's one of the only studies to follow people for that length of time and with the focus that we have. But it's also a unique study. It's a group of people that were born in the 30s. Initially the sample was all boys or men. Yeah, uh, So it's really important to look beyond one study to look at whether the signal that's coming from this study is similar to the signal that you're getting from other studies. It's what we call replication, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when we look across studies, it's extraordinary the amount of research now that finds the importance of human connection for both positive well-being and the absence of connection, what we now call loneliness, as a risk factor for physical health and for early or premature death. Uh, so the things that we were finding in our study, and I'm happy to talk about more details, yeah, have so been confirmed by other studies. Is the exciting part? <laughs> yeah, amazing. Yeah, and uh, so the
2: relationships.
1: Um,
2: and, and before we move yeah.
0: forward, I, I want our audience to understand that you know because a lot of people have questions like, okay, maybe it was something else. Maybe there are other factors that are imposing on a person's understanding of their life maybe it's their education level maybe they never really experienced say things that would challenge their socioeconomic status levels or hunger or health issues but in a in a scientific study most of these factors are accounted for so you know all of these factors are adjusted for and so that's the finding I just wanted to kind of introduce that topic because Mm -hmm. it is a scientific study at the end of the day and all of these factors are adjusted for correct Dr. Schultz?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, and I'll give you just one example of one of our findings, but again, there are many that point to the importance of relationships. So if we look at midlife in their fifties at what predicts uh, a healthy kind of period in their eighties, we looked at folks again in their eighties and we looked at if they were still alive, if they were alive, how well they were functioning physically, and if they were happy. And the folks who were doing the best in their eighties, it wasn't their cholesterol level that predicted their health in their 80s, it was the quality of their relationships, in this case, with their partner. So their intimate partner predicted that. Um, I already talked about this finding where the the connection that one has in their 80s to one's partner helped predict cognitive health three and a half years later. So all of these uh, findings are controlling very carefully, as Aisha suggests, for other factors like socioeconomic status and physical health, when we're looking at cognitive health, we look very carefully trying to isolate these factors, but equally important, they're replicated. These are findings that are common in other studies. When we look and we gather the data, if you look at meta-analyses that integrate hundreds of studies now, mm-hmm. we find the power of relationships in shaping physical health.
2: Amazing, Amazing! Amazing. incredible. Um, uh, the, the, the variable that kind of intrigued me, because the two of us work i mean it's almost like continuous uh, work from morning till night on the same uh, topic which is uh, neuro um what were the elements as far as relationship was concerned as that 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 determined uh, the the cognitive resiliency over time
1: yeah oh i want to say one thing for your listeners that when i talk about relationships i'm talking about a variety of relationships yeah. so we're talking about intimate relationships Uh, friendships, uh, relationships with your relatives, with your kids, with your parents, that uh, the finding isn't restricted to one type of relationship. Mm -hmm. When we kind of unpack it, what becomes clear is that relationships give us so many things. They serve so many functions that it's hard to get that from one relationship. But the Mm -hmm. finding that I was talking about in terms of cognitive health is about an intimate relationship. So what we did is we interviewed folks in their 80s. Uh, This is one of those times that we recorded the interview. And we asked them a little bit about uh, their relationship with their partner and particularly how much they were able to depend on their partner for assistance or how much they seemed to fear that, how much they were thinking about uh, their own physical decline and their ability to provide and help their partner. So these are folks in their 80s. Mm -hmm. Um, And we came up with a rating of security of attachment. So attachment is an idea that begins with early infancy about how much a child can depend on a caretaker for safety and security, a a secure base is the language that folks in attachment use. And we had an idea, but it hadn't been studied, that in your 80s, it's really beneficial to have a secure base too, that with the potential decline in health, the imminent risk perhaps of dying, of losing your partner, that having a secure base, base again became quite powerful. So we used this interview to assess their security of attachment, and we did it not just by what they told us, but also how believable the story they told us. So we asked them to give us, for example, five adjectives that describe their relationship with their partner. And if they said something like loving, we said, could you give us an example of what you mean by loving? And part of what we were looking at as we listened to their narrative unfold was how believable that narrative was. And if they said, you just have to believe me, it's loving, We didn't believe them. We're psychologists, so we didn't believe them. Uh, If they gave us examples of how they were loving, you know, my partner is always kind. My partner helps me figure out what I need to do during the day, helps me think about what's most important in my life. We said, great, it sounds like that really is a loving relationship. And the security of that relationship predicted how strong people's memory was three and a half years later. This was more true for women than for men, uh, but this link with cognitive health was quite intriguing. And there's a lot of more recent research trying to understand and unpack the role that uh, connections and social engagement might play with keeping our brains sort of fresh and and, uh, healthy as we age. So this was a finding that intrigued us. The mechanism isn't exactly clear to us, uh, but the signal was very clear that those who are more strongly attached preserved more of their memory functioning three and a half years later. Not to
2: yeah, not to throw a wrench. In, uh, I'm already thinking as a as scientist uh, of the negative confound. For example, if somebody wasn't able to produce a believable uh, story, it might have been a signs of early cognitive decline Whoa. that Absolutely. actually pre- presaged uh, future. But but I'm, I'm 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 not trying. Yeah, interesting. Absolutely.
1: So there are a number of. This is again why we always look to other research to you know to replicate yeah. the finding and see that there's a signal. Um, but there is other research talking about, you know, when we're in connection with others, when we engage regularly, and you have to think about people in their 80s and 90s who may have, uh, there may be more isolated, there may be fewer opportunities to exercise that part of our social brain, that there's something about being in a strong connection that may exercise parts of the brain. We think this is a potential mechanism that's worthy of looking into. Um, that may have some benefits for health. There, there are all sorts of other mechanisms that could be at work here that have to do with you know, healthy behaviors of people who are in more secure attachment. Um, the verbal and linguistic patterns that you're talking about, I think are also important to look at, um, yeah. but an intriguing finding that we're eager to see more people you know, look at no, just to
2: expand on this concept, that uh, we we just shared a concept yesterday about, environment um, or the... Um, an enriched environment for cognitive
0: reserve. Yeah. Yep. Co-
2: and, and there's nothing more enriching than the conversations that you have regularly with your partner. We've seen exactly. often partnerships that have been there for 40, 50 years, but there's not much exchange. Um, and and But that exchange is a an incredible, consistent, ever-present, signal-creating Cognitive reserve creating process, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is probably more powerful than anything else we speak about, which is nutrition and exercise.
0: So, even though sometimes you feel like your brain is being fried with your partner, I'm not talking about you, <laughs> it's actually <laughs> a good thing. <laughs> it's a good thing.
2: Your brain is actually getting a lot of exercise. <laughs> I don't know how we should take that, but
1: yes, yes. But yeah, oh, I love, I love that. I, I love this idea, though. And that, that's the mechanism that we have in mind that I think is worthy of looking at some more. So, um it's the kinds of things that my partner may give me but also in listening to my partner i have to exercise my brain in certain ways i have to try and put myself in her shoes what 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 is she trying to tell me why is this important to her i have to do things in good relationships we do this maybe naturally or we learn to do it uh, but i have to do things that require tremendous cognitive activities about perspective taking and uh, trying to understand things on the fly, right? It's not like reading a book where you can put it down and come back to it later. When you're talking to your partner in real time, there's a, a cognitive demand that is quite significant. So I love this idea that you're, you're putting forth, and that's the idea that we had in our head too. That might be one of the potential mechanisms that are at play here. Uh,
2: I, I, No, I, I mean, even soft concepts, like respect in a relationship. Respect in a relationship means that you're attending to a higher number of signals as opposed mm-hmm. to just passing them off as, as noise or in reflex loops or and in computer science, they call it macro or habit uh, thoughts. And when, you go, when, you, when you're having a respect for a relationship, okay, it's great as far as the social structure, but as far as cognitive, that means you have to be in a higher state of awareness, higher signal detection mechanism. And then therefore you have to process it more, which means that your tacit uh, default state is a higher level of cognitive activity. Oh, that's pretty beautiful.
0: That is really cool.
2: Yeah.
1: Thank you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: See yeah. what your listeners <laughs> can't see that can't hear that I can see is the, the the body language between the two of you, which I also think is part of it, right? You need to figure out a way to communicate with your partner. It might involve touching, it might involve head nodding, it could involve all sorts yeah. of things. That require cognition that your brain is heavily involved. So That's beautiful, beautiful, so
0: fascinating.
1: Uh, so uh, speaking of that, uh, so relationships, and and
2: of course it's not a monosyllabic or an all um, encompassing uh, concept. It varies um, uh, deep relationship. Even if you take it even deeper, or uh, define it even more specifically with deeply relationships and connected relationship, whatever. Uh, if you had to make it into greater strata of Good relationship or good life. How would you dis- dis- distill that into those different sta- strata of definitions of good life?
1: Yeah. So so we like to think about the functions that relationships serve and, and where you're getting them from. So it's clear that relationships are key in helping us deal with stress. So when we're stressed, we have our emotions to deal with and being connected to other people can help calm us. Uh, people who we care about and we trust can call us out and tell us that you know, you've you've talked about this for years, Mark. About this feeling. You know, maybe it's not everyone else. Maybe it's you here. Maybe you need to think more about you. So there are a number of ways that people can help us when we're stressed out. They can give us information that may help identify a path forward. So they may have expertise that we don't have. Um, they might help us. You know, when we need things, drive us to a doctor or drive us to the hospital or uh, look after our kids if we need them. So. Stress buffering is a big part of why relationships are probably important for health. Um, But if we start to unpack it, you know, there there are hundreds of functions that relationships serve. Our identities are shaped by who we spend time with and who we feel connected to. Identity is important for our mental health. Um, The experience of joy and pleasure, really important. That is part of the good life. We often experience our greatest joys and pleasures with people that we're connected to. So the list goes on and on, and some people are fortunate they can find all those functions in one person. It's often an intimate other. Uh, but many yeah. of us rely on more than one person to fulfill those relationship functions. Yeah. Um, and you know, I also want to say at some basic human level, we're social animals. So just the feeling of connection, which is sort of the opposite of feeling lonely. The feeling of connection is so important. I think for many of us, we realized it more than ever during the pandemic when we were disconnected from others. Uh, but as humans, we need that sense of connection with other folks, and that's part of what relationships give us. Clearly, if we look at our evolutionary past, we were social animals. That was the way we survived. We protected ourselves. We built you know, uh, safety, and we found food uh, with numbers with other people. Yeah, so this is a a part of our past. And in modern culture, one of the biggest threats to our physical and our mental health is a sense of isolation or loneliness.
2: Mm. Uh, So this intrigues me in the sense that, uh, so how does concepts, I mean, these are old concepts coming from us from Carl Jung and and, and even probably earlier than that, the introvert and the extrovert concept, which now we know it's not just this monosyllabic concept of introvert and extrovert, it's a continuum and it's also across different behavioral manifestations. But how does that manifest, or how does that represent itself in this uh, uh, environment of um, uh, uh, community and connectivity?
1: Yeah. So this to me is a really interesting topic because so many people identify with the idea that I'm shy or I'm introverted. And what we find and what other studies find is that everyone needs connection. Everyone benefits from those social connections. For people who are shy or more on the extreme version of introversion, um, they may also experience stress and anxiety when they connect with, the, with others. So they have to manage that side that you were talking about, the arousal side, which can be aversive to them. It can be troubling. It can be worrisome you know, when you experience anxiety. So for, for folks who are worried about how they're doing in relationships, worried about what relationships may do to them, relationships have an added um, um, I don't want to say cost is not the right word, but they have an added challenge that they have to overcome in order to enjoy the benefits of relationships. But the message that I want to emphasize is that we all need relationships. Even the most introverted people need relationships. And this in some ways is is surprising even to me. When I was younger in my life, I worked on another longitudinal study. And we interviewed people. Um, We were interested in in the mental disorders that they may have had, the psychiatric disorders. So we did Mm -hmm. a structured interview of folks. And one of the things that was amazing to me, this was before I went to graduate school, um, it was amazing to me that the folks that had anxiety disorders, especially social anxiety disorders, often found jobs in which they didn't spend time with others. So the one that I remember the most was someone who did an overnight shift in a supermarket, stocking the shelves in the supermarket so they wouldn't have to deal with people at night. Yeah. Um, so we know there are people out there that really find being in places that are very social, they feel that aversive in some ways, they worry about what that will be like, but those people also benefit from relationships if they can tolerate some of the anxiety and stress that it creates as well.
2: Mm. That's 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 interesting. I, I, we have two teenagers <clears throat> and uh, and I always bring up the concept of making your, yourself to some extent, of course, this is not a binary concept, this is, uh, to some extent comfortable with discomfort because uh, that discomfort, uh, you have to move that edge of that discomfort because that also helps with life, uh, 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 taking on opportunities, taking on um, challenges, putting yourself in uncomfortable situations of growth, growth itself, change or delta is the very essence of our frontal lobe, who we are as humans. But um, at the same time, though, I have to be very careful that, pe- uh, my, especially my kids but uh, or the people I speak to, I don't make it sound like they have to jump too fast. It has to be a incremental increase in comfort seeking. But what you say here is extremely important. I, I want everybody to recognize the fact that uh, social interaction is is important for our health and our brain health. Wherever you are in that that journey of comfort and, and uncomfortable situations, you have to, you're the best person to kind of test out the edge of that and push yourself because the idea that there are people that are just introverts and should just stay in a room and that's healthy, it's not.
1: It's it's really, uh, it should be a little more than that. I think that's absolutely right. And and what I think is also important to say is that, you know, we talked about the functions of relationships and, and part of that function is to give us joy and pleasure. But for some people, being in a loud room with loud music and lots of people is never going to give them joy. They need a quieter atmosphere, and that's fine. So it's the question of where you find that kind of connection. I think that's really important. You know, I'm a clinician, I'm a a clinical psychologist, and I've treated plenty of people with anxiety disorders. And the the basic sort of underlying principle of of treating anxiety disorders is exactly what you communicate, right? It's graded exposure to the things that you're afraid of. Yeah, um, but all of us actually, we we talk in our in our book, The Good Life. We talk about um, the idea of social fitness. So all of us benefit from attentive and intentional action around our our kind of social connections. So what are we good at? What do we need to practice more? What do we need help from a friend or a partner to help us through? How can we improve our social connections and? the the idea that somehow we'll be good at things socially without practice i think is problematic that all of us need to work on our social fitness in ways that we can maximize the benefits of social connection
2: uh, absolutely
1: i love
0: that phrase social fitness
1: social
2: fitness absolutely that is so appropriate i i tell my kids i mean now we give public talks by by the dozens in a week and and it's uh, it's just they they feel like it was it just came natural to us and I tell them, even in medical school, if I had a, I had to speak in public, I, I, I described to them the physical state that I was going through so that they know they can see it, they can mirror it, and they know that they, there's a way out of it, uh, the, the heart rate. The, the, I had to actually clench my thumbs and cause some discomfort so that that would take. and and it is a journey, it's a, sm- a slow journey, um, but but uh, it's a journey that can be um, um, that, that can be had in slow incremental changes. Now, did you see uh, this description of the good life? I'm going to stick with that. Um, Different and different cultures and different populations?
1: Yeah, such an important question. So again, for the book, we spent a lot of time looking at research from a number of different backgrounds of participants in the studies and from a number of different countries. And the, the best data that I can talk about really is around loneliness these days. So I'm gonna talk about the importance of social connection and the good life. And, and what we find is across countries, and their are meta-analyses that number now over 200 studies, um, we find that the absence of connection or the lack of social integration, it can be measured in lots of different ways, is consistently connected to both physical health and risk for morbidity. Um, so really important, uh, risk for mortality, excuse me. So really important idea. Um, That seems to be true across culture. There's also a a very famous study by House and colleagues that was published in Science years ago that, to me, is a a very important study. It looks at um, risk for death at any age, and it's from very divergent um, samples that they studied. So one sample was in eastern Finland. Finland is an incredibly homogenous country, all Caucasian. Um, Finland actually has a very complicated heritage, but but white as we define it in, in sort of modern culture. Um, they also looked at uh, a group of people in um, Georgia that included uh, a number that was mostly blacks and whites in Georgia. And they looked at risk of death at any age. And what you see is that people who grew up in Finland They have a huge privilege. They're likely to live longer at any age. Um, There's something about growing up in Finland or about their genetic heritage that distinguishes them from other populations, including folks that grew up in in Georgia. Um, However, if you look at, you, you change what you're focusing on your study, if you look at social integration and risk of death at any age, what you find is a positive relationship between Um, or I should say a negative relationship between the lack of social integration and the risk of dying. That the less socially integrated you are, the higher your risk of dying at any age. And that's true in Eastern Finland. It's true in Georgia. It's true in almost every study that you look at. And the slope, the the nature of that relationship is pretty similar. It's a pretty powerful relationship. So to us, that suggests a signal that may transcend some cultural uh, values and some ethnic differences that we have. Now, of course, the meaning of social connection still is likely to vary across cultures. Um, so we have to be thoughtful about that. It may not mean the same thing. It may be your family in one culture may be more critical than friends. Um, but in your culture, if you're able to talk about feeling more socially connected, it appears that that insulates you from some of the risks of dying,
2: hmm. which is very powerful. Well, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so that that seems to be a common signal uh, across uh, across different uh, communities. And, and I see I that could, as well, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say, if I can give one other example from our study, if you remember the two cohorts in the study grew up in very different circumstances, right? They didn't live geographically, yeah. they lived in very close proximity. These were neighborhoods in Boston, uh, but very different circumstances. And they also lived, as we talked about, the kids that grew up in these four neighborhoods lived on average 10 years uh, less than the folks that went to Harvard University. But if we look at the relationship between social variables like relationship satisfaction or the number of friends that you have and the outcomes that we look at, we see almost the identical relationships across those two cohorts. And that's another sign that at some basic level, social connections transcend some of the cultural differences and some of the bigger differences that we have.
0: Mm -hmm. Amazing. Um, So I hear a couple of words that could potentially be synonymous, um, a purposeful life, a meaningful life, a good life. Is there any difference between say a good life and a meaningful life?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and what I would say is a good life is the bigger idea. So the good life might include a meaningful life or a sense of purpose, right? A sense of purpose keeps us going, gets us out of bed in the morning, uh, having, a. a, a having a life that has meaning is related to a sense of purpose. But a good life is about more than that. To us, a good life is about engaging in the world, um, taking a chance with connections with others, not shying away from them, leaning into the challenges that we have, not trying to deny them or to, to kind of ignore them. So a good life is, is a life that may have meaning and purpose, but it's got more than that. It's about engagement with others in particular, Uh, So it's the opportunity to experience those good things that happen in relationships, but also accept and embrace some of the challenges that happen as well. When we love someone deeply, um, it's likely that we'll experience loss and and disappointment as well, Uh, even in close, good relationships. That's true.
2: I've heard this from you a couple of times. I want to kind of uh, bring it to the surface. Um, a, A Good life includes challenges as well. Yep. And and is that because of the challenges themselves, which I doubt, but I'm, I'm kind of setting my the question up, or is it that we need contrast to come to the surface of awareness? Um, yeah.
1: So I, I, there are probably two ways to answer it. One is the the kind of psychological. One may be a kind of philosophical way. So when we study the lives of these, particularly the 724 individuals that we tracked across eight decades of their lives stuff happens. The, the folks that grew up in a relatively more privileged lot that had a good life, that made lots of money, that were very successful, they're not insulated from challenge. It just happens to us. It's part of life. Um, so everyone in our study experienced adversity. Um, the nature of the adversity might be different depending on how much money or how much privilege you you go through life with, um, but, but life contains challenge. And I think that's just a truism that our research confirms what philosophers and and sort of wise religious elders have talked about forever the challenge is part of life um this idea that it highlights the good stuff i think is partly one of the ways that we cope with those challenges so certainly knowing what it's like not to have something or knowing what it's like to have the threat of something that's important to you being taken away makes that thing seem more important So I think we do see this sort of accumulation of wisdom that that people acquire partly through dealing with challenges and dealing with adversity. Of course, it has to be this graded challenge as well. Adversity can overwhelm us and crush us, but if we're fortunate enough to have resources and connections when we encounter adversity, there are often ways that we can grow. And one of those may be a kind of perspective that I would call a, a kind of wisdom, that life can be different than it is right now. Um, one of the things we talk a lot about in the book are the social messages that we get about the good life. So the, that conversation is very different than the one we've had, right? The social messages are fame is really important. Monetary success is critical. Achievement is critical. Um, And that's very different than, you know, the kind of wisdom traditions have been telling us for years about the importance of connection and meaning in our life. So our research suggests that, you know, earning another whatever amount of money it is that you hope to earn isn't gonna insulate you from most of life's challenges. The, the fact is, and it's a sad, you know, kind of pessimistic um, view, the, the fact is we live a limited lifespan, we're gonna die. The people that we care about also live that limited lifespan. And things happen to us that are sad and challenging. So one of the goals in, in to live a good life is really being able to meet those challenges, to recognize that challenges give us the opportunity to grow and to learn new things. Uh, but challenges are an inevitable part of our life.
2: Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Uh, this next question I have, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, this is the subject that interests me quite no, a bit. So today I'm speaking a little more. Is... Um, the, the idea of, of, of change uh, or our, our capacity to change. But, but before that, I want to uh, speak about the language that occupies the halls of our mind um, that also matters. That's actually from another Harvard study. Yeah. Uh, the language that, um, that we, we uh, translate through, the language that we transcribe through, uh, it, it, it matters quite a bit. Um, and and part of that, and, and the old tradition that was kind of given to us, whether it was through the church, through religious organizations, through our family tradition and all of that, which kind of mitigated the negative because you had the totality of connection to the greater purpose, the greater com- community element. Yeah. But in today's world, where we're all TikTok driven in you know, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, where does that language, and, and I worry about that. I'm actually a big fan of TikTok, and that's a completely separate talk, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, it's about information dissemination, uh, good or bad, but it's about um, where does that language that occupy our brain come from, and what can we do about it? Because to me, yeah. it's very important.
1: Yeah, I mean I think this is a profound question, you know, big, big question. And and what I would say is that I'm gonna enlarge it beyond TikTok, that you know, the technologies that we have at our disposal today, especially in terms of social media and the kind of virtual connections, can be an extraordinary, powerful and healthy tool. They they keep they kept us connected during the pandemic. They allow people who live in places where they feel quite isolated or feel very different than the people that live geographically close to connect with people that are like them, but further away. So there's an incredible healthy power to these new technologies, but they also come with challenges. And part of the challenge is that they're voices that are almost ubiquitous in the heads, particularly of young people. The amount of time people are spending on screens in the United States is extraordinary. I think on average, it's about 11 hours a day. Uh, And that means many, many messages coming at people that weren't as accessible 20, 30 years ago when people were relying only on TV or only on newspapers uh, and and on their families, of course. So I think that presents all sorts of challenges. And you're talking about both the, the, the messages that come from those traditional sources. And I think also the source of connection that that provided as well. And these technologies have put up obstacles to some of those connections. So families feel fractured because it's not just the kids. The parents are often on the phone and distracted as well, that they're not able to put away these distractions in the modern world. They're pushed at us at a rate that's quite unusual. So this is something I do think about. It's something that we're researching with the current, so we're studying the kids of the original study participants, 1,300 daughters and sons, And one of the things we're interested in is sort of where they came of age on the digital divide and how that influences their interactions with others. So I'm going to make this concrete by thinking about what the pandemic may have done for young people over the last three years. Uh, Virtual schooling, incredibly important in some ways. It maintains some connections, but also a huge cost to have all of your connections virtual. Um, That in the world if we want to have intimate connections if we want to solve in real time a challenge that we have with a friend texting is very difficult as a medium to do that and doesn't involve the same kinds of on you know in real time um, regulation of emotions regulation of our cognition the challenges that are involved in in real-time relationships and we have a group of a generation of people that grew up both with this social media and technology uses uh, that encourage virtual connections and who lacked a lot of social connections during the pandemic. Those are folks that are coming into college. I'm a university teacher. I see these students not knowing what to do, you know, at the beginning of class. Do I talk to someone or do I look at my phone? <laughs> do I stare at my notebook? Right? We're just out of practice, wow. all of us. And you know, my contemporaries have the same challenges when we're trying to figure out is it okay to be together now? Uh, what does that mean, be together? You know, Do we get to hug people that we care about still, or do we still need to be careful? So the pandemic combined with this sort of revolutionary change in technology and social media, really interesting questions that I think social scientists need to pay attention to about what impact it has. And I'm particularly worried about what impact it has with our real-time ability to deal with conflict, to deal with emotions that get raised when we have differences with others, both in intimate connections and in Differences that come up with people that we're not particularly close to, but it's important to get along with. Amazing.
0: Wonderful. And I think, um, you know, thanks to the study, which is an ongoing study, I think um, we will learn so much more. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that the data is being collected as we speak. I mean, it is continuing. And exactly. hopefully, Pre-pandemic and a post-pandemic pandemic data collection and comparison, bringing in newer generation and comparing them to how they assimilate information, how they, you know, relate to others compared to people in, you know, in the 1930s. So it's fantastic. If you could give us an idea of what the next steps are for the harvest study, that would be great.
1: Yeah. So I, I think we're really kind of doubling down on social connection and trying to understand it. And this idea that I just talked about, about when people grew up Were they uh, familiar during their growing up period with social media? Was that part of the way that they communicated with friends or not? So we have in this second generation, we have folks that were born similar in age to me. They didn't grow up with, uh, with cell phones, they didn't grow up with the internet and social media. And then we have folks who are younger and grew up with these kinds of tools. And we're interested particularly in some of their more intimate connections with friends, with family members how they engage socially, and how they deal with emotions in that context, whether there's a kind of long-term impact of that. So we've also done some research recently in which we looked at um, the power of virtual interactions. And one of the things we found, maybe not surprising to most people, is that in-person interactions have, there's more heat, there are stronger emotions that are aroused in real-time in-person interactions than in texting interactions, uh, telephone interactions, or even video-mediated interactions. And that emotion isn't going to go away, right? We, 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 that's a part of who we are as humans. So we're really interested in trying to uh, look more closely at the, the methods that people are using to deal with those emotions, to regulate those emotions, and whether they're connected to the amount of time that they spend in the virtual world. And whether they grew up before or after the virtual world became such an important part of our life—that's a—that's a big question that we're interested. In. Beautiful, wow, beautiful. beautiful.
2: Well, um, we uh, this is truly—I uh, uh, really truly mean this. Uh, we I could speak with you about this concept for hours, <laughs> and on all the different nuances, and we'll definitely hopefully we'll get to talk to you again. Uh, about different elements of this, I want everybody to go get the book, The Good Life. Um, I think it's such an important concept. It's science-based. It's not another, uh, f- uh, you know, fluff uh, piece that uh, people are writing from their opinions and then putting some references around. It's the longest study on 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 human flourishing, and and uh, and I love the the way that you approach it. I think it's such an important concept for people to kind of get a little more um, in-depth uh, idea about. So uh, we uh, we love it.
0: Absolutely. So The Good Life is going to be published or come out in January 10th of next year. So it's right around the corner. And Dr. Schultz, where can, where can people find out more about you? Is there is there any way they can learn more about your work?
1: Sure. We have a website for the book, thegoodlifebook.com. There's also a website for the Harvard Study of Adult Development. They can learn a little bit more about the research, um, and they'll find me on my academic website as well.
0: Amazing. And so we'll- not TikTok. <laughs>
1: not I'm not personally not a big TikTok person, but but yeah, I was not yet, <laughs> at least.
2: That was my social interaction awkward joke. That as my kids call it dad joke. Yeah. Yeah. No.
0: Well put all of this information in the podcast notes. I can't tell you how lovely this conversation was, Dr. Schultz. Thank you for all your research, your work for letting us glimpse into, you know, human psychology and interaction and identifying important elements for us to live a truly good life.
1: Oh, thank you both. It was a pleasure being here. And thank you for your good work thinking about also how to promote healthy lives. So, you you guys do good work.
0: Thank Thank you 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 so much. We look forward to speaking with you again, hopefully soon.
1: Great.